it's time for a healthy Reaches breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate. Two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I am Tom Philpot, food and ag correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. My name is Raj Patel, and I'm a research professor at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. This week's secret ingredient is mushroom. Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies They feed on dead plant matter, and that's one of the reasons I think we kind of recoil from them in some ways. So they're on that kind of interesting uh, margin between life and death. The number one best-selling hardcover non-fiction book in America at the moment is How to Change Your Mind, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. Uh, Its author, Michael Pollan, is with us right now. Michael, welcome to The Secret Ingredient. Thank you, Raj. Alas, uh, Rebecca McEnroy, our intrepid producer here at uh, KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, uh, is away this week. Now, Michael, f- first of all, I mean, people know you for your work uh, in and around food. Um, what's? I mean, can you sort of trace out the, the, the continuity between that work and, and this? Yeah, the, and the discontinuity. Season? I mean, it is a departure in some ways, but it picks up on interests I've long had. Um, to me, food, which I wrote, I don't know, three or four books on is a branch on a tree, the trunk of which is really concerned with our relationship to the, our engagement with the natural world, how nature changes us, how we change nature. And um, we use plants, and that's been my focus for a long time, uh, to for various things, to gratify various desires, including beauty and sweetness and one of the, and, and nutrition. Um, and one of the most curious ways we use plants and fungi is to change consciousness. Uh, almost everyone who's listening to this probably used a plant to change the texture of consciousness today, whether it was coffee or tea or a cigarette. Um, and that, I've always found that a very curious human desire. Uh, why is it adaptive? Why should it, why should it have survived and, and indeed flourished? So, and I've, I wrote about that way back in Botany of Desire. I wrote an article even in the 90s about growing my own opium and, and looking at the drug war. And obviously, some of these psychoactive plants are encouraged by society, and some are discouraged uh, actively. Some, many of them are illegal, but different ones in different societies. Um, so that interest had always been kind of lurking around my work, and um, and then I started hearing about this research going on using psilocybin, which is the secret ingredient in magic mushrooms, one of two actually, um, to treat people uh, with a variety of indications, including. Um, depression and anxiety because of a terminal cancer diagnosis, uh, to treat depression in general, to treat addiction. And, um, and that kind of reawakened this interest to look at the most radical consciousness changers, which are the psychedelics. Uh, and so that was 
kind of the story of of how I got into it. There's some other, you know, factors. One is I have the food work is about healing and health and and you know, a big part of it is 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 why are we why is our diet making us so sick and how might it be changed to make us healthier? And this work too is about health. Uh, obviously it's it's about mental health more than physical health to the extent you can separate those two things. So that's part of the continuity also. Um there's uh, there's also another continuity in that you're um you, I mean obviously the 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 style in which you uh, approach many of uh, or many of the, the subjects that you've covered has been uh, as an apprenticeship. Um yeah. and there's always there are always people accompanying you here. Um and that seems to have been a, a sort of theme that that also kind of might might jump the tracks, as it were. I mean, that, that there's that there's a way in which, particularly in America, uh, drug culture is unaccompanied in the same way that eating is unaccompanied. That, that, that mm. uh, you know, we have junk food and we have junk drugs. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm I wonder if you can talk a little bit about uh, the, the 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 how how it is that you you think that. Um, some of the ideas about how it is we've enriched our, well, we, we're struggling to enrich our food culture in the, the U.S. Might, might translate also into the way that we might, might understand or is you, you've come to understand drugs. Yeah, well, there is always a push, and I think it has to do with the way the market works and capitalism works, to get us to do things individually. Because if you, you, can, you can sell more stuff to individuals than you can to groups. Um, with food, there was a, a very deliberate effort to break down the social structures of eating by marketing food directly to children, and then even within those demographics, breaking them into teenage boys and girls of, you know, of a certain age, um, to break the mother's uh, control over the, the diet of the children, or the parents in general, but it tended to be the mother's. Um, so there's an individualizing of uh, food culture that serves the market more than it serves individuals. Um, when we eat individually, we tend to eat more. Uh, we lose the sociality of eating, which is a very important part of it. It just becomes a transaction between us and the stuff um, rather than a social event. Um, and and the, the social aspect of food... Uh, moderates and mediates the quantity you eat and um, and what you eat. Um, when you share food, you uh, uh, other things are going on at the table, and uh, and those are very important. They're just as important as the uh, you know intake of calories. And uh, and in drug culture, one of the really interesting uh, things that uh, when when you look at the history of psychedelics, which are perhaps the most disruptive kind of drug that we take. Um, in terms of how radical the change in consciousness is. Um, if you look at how cultures have used these drugs, and they've used them for thousands of years, traditional cultures, you never take them alone. There is always an elder, a shaman, a ceremony, uh, which in a way is very much like a meal. And, um, and the function of that, I think, is protective um, in that the bad trip that you hear about often is a function of being in the wrong set or setting. I mean, set is mindset, setting is uh, physical environment. Um, with no one to help you out of it and um, in a kind of spiral of anxiety. Um, and there are also, a, there's probably a screening process for who can take these drugs at what stage in their life. Um, it's, it's a ritual event or it's a rite of passage. When these drugs burst upon the West rather suddenly, beginning in the 50s and 60s, we didn't have that cultural container. 
And every, you know, some people were kind of smart about it and they'd make sure there was always one person who stayed closer to the ground, you know, during the experience. But in general, it became, uh, there. it was an unregulated activity. It wasn't a social activity. And I think that that is part of why we ended up, some people ended up getting in psychological trouble with these drugs and why there was such a moral backlash against them. And can you make, perhaps make that bridge um, to the... the uh, the sort of the, the current sort of parlor situation with the uh, with the opioid epidemic. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, those drugs are definitely not a social phenomenon. It's very much an individual phenomenon uh, and a, and a very complicated one. I mean, you know, we've been taught that it is the illicit nature of drugs that makes them so dangerous, but in fact, this was illicit drug that got us into trouble. I mean, a heavily marketed. Uh, drug um, where you had uh, a large company, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, essentially uh, trying to make the case to the public that this was safer, that OxyContin was safer than other opiates and that was not subject to abuse. And as we've just found, they knew they knew otherwise, actually. Yes, Michael. Hello, Tom. Sorry, How, are you? How are you? Good to see you. The book is wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. What a pleasure to be on with you guys. to bring your mic up. And are we, have you talked about sort of the, the pre mid, you know, the pre 20th century encounters with, with mushrooms? And- uh, but briefly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we could do more about that, but just the fact that it was always used in a ritual context rather than individual context. Right. And, um, there were a lot of, um, there were taboos on using the drugs. There's a famous case in, um, ancient Greece, the Eleusinian mysteries, uh, which is a mystery actually, because everybody was sworn to secrecy. But uh, there was an annual rite uh, related to the worship of Demeter, in which um, everybody. I first I thought it was just the Greek elites, but in fact, everybody in the culture, except for slaves and people like that, uh, participated in this annual rite where they they took a drug that appears to have been a psychedelic called a kikion, k y k e o n, and people went to the underworld and had visions and. Um, they were sworn to secrecy, and on one occasion, somebody got a hold of the Kikion and threw a party uh, during another time of year and was brutally punished for it. Wow. Um, so, uh, so the regulation of these powerful mind-altering drugs was very important, and I think it grew out of a recognition that they were very threatening and destabilizing um, to the individual and, and sometimes to the society, I think, um, as they were in our society in the 60s. Um, so that when they came to America, we, uh, since they, they were kind of sprung on us unaware, there was, and they came without their traditions, um, we didn't really have a set of guiding uh, um, uh, a container uh, to put them in. And, and now that's, that's the work that we're doing right now, actually. That's what, the, that's what the researchers are doing. They've devised a medical container, whether that's the only proper container I don't know but it does seem to minimize the chances of adverse events they've had uh, they've had no serious adverse events in this current generation of research so that suggests that with proper guidance and um, the reassurance of a of a white-coated shaman uh, you know because that those are our shamans um, that you can prevent the kind of problems that people sometimes have just to step back a second um, you write somewhere in the book about when the Spanish Empire encountered them in the New yeah. World and what sort of impact they had and reaction the Spanish Empire had. I wonder if you could talk us through Yeah, that sure. Bit. Well, uh, after the conquest, um, the conquistadors found that the Aztecs and, and other um, 
indigenous groups had these uh, mushroom cults. They were using psilocybin mushrooms uh, in, a, in a, f- a few different ways, divination, healing, and, uh, and worship. And um, they called them Tionantacatl, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, um, uh, which meant flesh of the gods. So the, the, the similarity to the Christian sacrament was clear, that you are eating the body of God when you partake of this. This was, this was of course, pagan as far as the, the Catholics were concerned. But it was particularly threatening, I think, because it was a better sacrament. Yeah. Um, you <laughs> needed faith to go from bread and wine to Christ. I can tell you that 20th century communion wafers don't taste very yeah. good. <laughs> then I, I had nothing few, for you. I had a few in that century, and they were pretty terrible. <laughs> so you hear, you know, people, and there are these descriptions that the Spanish wrote of these people having taken their mushrooms and, and seeing God. And so you could actually visit the gods. And any, I think any... Um, whether it's a sacrament or uh, anything that circumvents the authority of a priesthood and gives you direct contact with the divine or whatever the authority is, um, is very threatening to institutional structures. And so the Spanish came down very hard and they suppressed the mushroom cults, destroyed all the mushroom stones, or most of them, some survived, and forced the, um, the worship of mushrooms and the use of mushrooms underground and where it remained for 500 years. It's kind of amazing it survived. Um, Very secretive, uh, and only in some parts of Mexico. Um, But that the the fact that this um, use had continued was, it was rumored in circles of ethnobotany and anthropology. Richard Evans Schultes, who was a a famous Harvard ethnobotanist, uh, had gotten wind of it, and he told R. Gordon Wasson who was a very interesting character in this. This is a banker at J.P. Morgan and an, and an amateur mycologist. His wife was Russian, and she had taught him on this love of mushrooms. And uh, he made it his project, strictly as an amateur, to find uh, these mushrooms and find a, a group of uh, indigenous people who were still using them, and succeeded in 1955. Writes about it in 1957 for Life magazine in like this 15-page story. It's, it's, it's an astonishing piece of journalism uh, about his own experience because she he persuaded this uh, this curandera, this healer named Maria Sabina, to um, have a mushroom ceremony with him. And in fact, I went to the botanical library at Harvard and I found his field notebooks. And you can go through and watch the handwriting deteriorate (laughs) as the mushrooms come on. Some of that was the fact he was writing in the dark. Um, But uh, as one does on mushrooms, right? (laughs) Who needs light? In my experience, I could do no writing on mushrooms. Uh, I I did all my notes afterwards. I was hoping to make contemporaneous notes, but I'm just not happening. No, it wasn't happening. Well, when you talk, talk us through your experience, because that that will lead on to a, a question I have about uh, about death and transcendence that you've that yeah. you, you touch on in that in that meditation. Well, I felt at a certain point that I had to have these experiences to write this book. I had written an article about this in the New Yorker without trying anything, and it was a pretty straight ahead piece of science journalism, which is really all the New Yorker was comfortable with, I think, and all I was comfortable with at the time. But what I was hearing, there were two, two reasons made me realize I had to do this. One was I was hearing things from uh, volunteers and patients that were so astonishing. Um, you know, big transformations in character and outlook as a, real, as a result of a single experience. Um, 
spiritual experiences people ha- were having that seemed really implausible to me. Um, and uh, especially the kind of like elimination of fear of death that some of the cancer patients had that was really striking. So I didn't know that I could describe that persuasively based on their testimony, although I tried. Um, but I, I needed to know what that was about from inside. And then there's the fact that this is the way I like to do journalism. Um, you know, when I wrote about the cattle industry, I bought a steer and um, uh, built a house to write about architecture, apprenticed myself to a baker to learn how to bake. Um, so it's kind of the way I like to work. I like the fish out of water. I also think that, I mean, for me, the one of the biggest influences uh, on my writing, I realized, was a book I read when I was like 13, which was Paper Lion by George Plimpton, where he, uh, he was a sports writer and editor of the Paris Review. Um, and he essentially reinvented sports writing by getting onto the field. And he persuaded the Detroit Lions to let him um, train in summer training camp as a quarterback and actually um, do a few plays as a uh, uh, during an exhibition game. And there's a quality of first sight or wonder you get doing something for the first time that that even someone who's really expert at it has has forgotten. And so even though you're by no means, uh, you, you, by no means do you have the authority of the expert, you have the authority of the first timer, which is a unique thing. So I, I've always tried to bring that to my work when I can, when it works. I, it, it offers you this perspective. It all, also offers a certain amount of humor because you are a fish out of water. And, um, uh, and it's fun. And you avoid the kind of easy traps of cynicism that journalists get into, you know, that they've you know, been there, done that, seen it all. Um, and I just like the perspective it gives me as a writer. I, I, people are not interested in the perspective of journalists, quad journalists. They're really not. They don't really like journalists that much. It's a very unnatural perspective on things. So if you can find another one as a journalist, it's often helpful. So, that, so I decided I would do this. And with a lot of trepidation, I was a very reluctant psychonaut. Um, I had had very limited experience. Uh, uh, for some reason, I didn't have, I didn't go to the college where there was lots of LSD around. I don't know what happened. Um, it was a, actually just a brief window. I, I checked this out because there was plenty of LSD there before I got there and plenty after I left. But I hit this the dry this, patch. This dry patch, yeah. <laughs> Not that I would have necessarily partaken. I was really terrified of these drugs. I, I really didn't think my grip on sanity was strong enough. Mm to um, mess with my mind to that extent. Marijuana was as far as I wanted to go. Um, so anyway, so with a lot of trepidation, I arranged uh, a series of uh, journeys, as the guides call them. One psilocybin journey alone, um, and then one guided one, and then a guided, with a different guide, LSD trip, and then a very strange psychedelic called 5-MeO-DMT, which is the smoked venom of the Sonoran Desert Toad. Um, which is, you know, quite a testament to the ingenuity of humankind to have figured that one out. <laughs> and, uh, and then some ayahuasca in, in, in a traditional circle, although not in the Amazon, in a yoga studio in, uh, in <laughs> a course. state that state that will not be named. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, and they were all um, different and uh, exciting and productive trips in different ways. Um, I was very happy I did it. I mean, the book notwithstanding. Um, but every night before I did one of these journeys, I was uh, just riven by misgivings and doubt and like part of me arguing with the other part of me that this was an insane thing to do. 
And, uh, uh, but fortunately I was able to overcome that reluctance and, um, and surrender to the experience. And that's a very important part of it. Um, surrender. You have to be willing to give up control. Otherwise you'll be miserable. So, um, yeah, so I was happy I did it. And it, and it turned out to be a lot of fun to write about these experiences. I was really worried about that too. How do you describe something that's ineffable? Um, you know, William James famously described the mystical experience. One of the characteristics was that it was ineffable. And you do definitely have experiences that you don't have the tools to put into words. Um, so, for example, on the, on the 5-MeO DMT, not only did my sense of self shatter, but the sense of time shattered and the sense of space shattered. And, you know, without character, place, or time, it's very hard to have a narrative. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, what do you, I mean, those are, the, talk about secret ingredients. <laughs> those right. are the secret ingredients. And um, so that was enormously difficult to write about. Um, but, but it was a great challenge as a writer. And, and you know, you, you guys know as fellow journalists that we are, you know, in this box of fact. And uh, it limits narrative possibility over and over again. We find we run up against that wall of, God, wouldn't it be great if <laughs> this character merged with this character so we had this unity. And, and uh, here I was writing about this realm of the imagination where I had so much more freedom. Uh, I mean, everything was true to what, I, what happened to me, but I was following a kind of imaginative logic that was um, really liberating to write about. You had a follow-up question. Yeah, um, and again, it's about this similarity between food and uh, and drugs, which is uh, that I mean, the way that that our food is presented to us often is uh, as food from nowhere, and mm. that, you know, and we throw it away, and we we have no idea about its sort of you know, its ultimate sort of destiny. Um, and you write very powerfully about um, this connection with death uh, that actually you know the, the, we, we never see food that rots because it's it's whisked away from our you know yeah. from, from, from beneath us um, but your you, you wrote very powerfully and particularly through your what one of your mushroom trips about this understanding of what death is uh, in and I wonder if you could sort of talk to us about that um, just because it, it seems to me that that, that it, that's a way to, to sort of connect to these cycles of life that we're often um, shielded from in our food system at least yeah well you know mushrooms themselves are about death right I mean they they're their um, mode of life is um, they feed on dead plant matter for the, for the most part. And that's one of the reasons I think we kind of recoil from them in some ways. They're, they're part of the cycle of deterioration. I mean, without mushrooms um, and fungi in general, the world would be this, this heap of dead plant matter and, uh, and animal matter that never got kind of recycled. Um, so they're on that kind of interesting uh, margin between life and death. And, um, uh, and I don't know that that has anything to do with the, the nature of the experience, um, but I found my psilocybin uh, trips did go there. Um, now, there's a background. There's always a setting to this. I mean, I, I didn't realize till I had finished the book, in fact, a few months after, um, how much my interest in this subject owed to the fact that my father was sick when I started it and that he had a cancer diagnosis uh, for lung cancer. And that, um, uh, you know, we don't, there's usually some kind of emotional reason that draws us to a subject, I think, and especially when you're changing subject to the extent that I was. And it never occurred to me uh, until a friend read the book and said, um, 
wow, your father's on every page. And I was like, I was so puzzled by this for a while. And then I realized, well, yeah, I guess that's, I wanted to have this conversation with these volunteers. And um, partly because my father didn't want to have that conversation. He was of a generation where you kind of internal, you, you process this internally. And we never had a conversation about his dying. Uh, even though I was very close to him and spent a lot of time with him and provided comfort in all sorts of ways and, and created openings to have that conversation or tried to, but he wasn't, he didn't want to go there. Um, and, uh, uh, yet here I was talking to these volunteers who had elected to do a psilocybin experience with the, uh, express intent of confronting their mortality and trying to think their way through what they were dealing with. Um, and they were talking very openly about a, a tab what is a taboo subject. Um, and that was uh, something I needed to do, I think. Um, so that was part of it. So this one psilocybin trip you're referring to, there was a lot of death imagery. I saw a lot of people who had been close to me who died. Um, I, uh, I looked in the mirror at one point and saw my, the skull of my, uh, my grandfather uh, and kind of in this mind meld. Um, and had this experience of this piece of music, um, this Bach um, unaccompanied cello suite played by Yo-Yo Ma, um, number two in D minor, I think it is, which is a very sad piece of music. I mean, it's really mournful that you've heard at funerals. And um, uh, and I had this, at this point in the journey, the my ego had completely dissolved. My sense of self was, I saw it spread out over the landscape as paint, but was untroubled by this, um, was beholding it from this other stance or consciousness that was very um, objective and uh, without emotion and, uh, and was fine with whatever was happening. And then, and then I had this merging with this piece of music that was, um, I, was I mean, it felt like a reconciliation with death at the time, um, that it kind of like... Uh, there was there was such beauty in the morning of this piece that you couldn't regret anything. Um, so it was a it was a very powerful experience, a very beautiful experience. I don't know exactly what it means or what to do with it, um, but in general, that ego death, which is a big part of the psychedelic experience at a high dose, um, and that's a term that Jung used, ego death. Uh, is you can look at it in a few ways. It's a rehearsal for death. It gives you a sense of what it would be like to give up something you think is so essential to your life. In the case of ego death, though, one of the things you realize is, oh, you're not necessarily identical to your ego. Um, and that's very liberating. Um, you suddenly gain a certain distance on it. This, this, this unit that you thought you traveled through life with and, and it was indispensable to your survival, it actually is not. And that's very freeing. Um, so, so you know, it's a death of one thing, but a, then there's the survival of something else. You know, when I was reading that section of your book and your your discussion of the sort of ego death that happens in these trips, I was thinking about a passage in Civilization and Its Discontents uh, by Freud, uh -huh. where he talks about uh, what he calls the oceanic feeling. Yeah. And a, um, a, a fellow scientist had sent him a... Um, a letter um, discussing it, and um, and it's this basically ego death—the feeling of oneness with the universe and the ego dissolving. Or with away. the mother, right? For him, yeah. And what uh, Freud, being sort of anti-spiritualist, the way he the way he processes it, well, he says, "I'm not sure if it's, it really exists. I've never experienced it, but I trust people who say they've had it." 
and he sees it as a re- return to before ego development. That's right. And he speculates that it's the sort of source of all religious feeling. That yeah. religious feeling comes from this. Yeah. Which well, there was his lack of respect for religious feeling. Yeah. Um, I mean that it was all regression for him. And you know, I've met there's some of the researchers who believe that. Um, uh, Robin Carhart Harris, who's a really interesting English neuroscientist, who's done some of the best work on this. He comes at it from a Freudian point of view, and he's very um, skeptical of the mystical experiences people report and thinks it's a regression to magical thinking. Um, he may be right. Um, you know, that it's there is this time when you're the child on the mother's breast where you don't have a sense of individuation and that you... And, and, and childhood is about developing that sense of separation then developing an ego. Uh, and, um, you know... So the loss of ego may be a going back, um, but it also could be a going forward. I mean, the ego that we have as Westerners uh, in a you know capitalist society is is different than the egos people had a couple hundred years ago in traditional society. I think part of what makes dying so difficult in our culture is not just a lack of faith, um, but this sense of we are this individual and uh and we're separate and that that's that's an illusion i mean you know there's a researcher in the book um matt johnson at uh you know who who you know makes the point that there's so many alternative descriptions of us than as individuals i mean we you know whether we're a swarm of genes or a social fundamentally social being that can't exist except with other people um that that the illusion is the ego and that um, one of the the virtues of psychedelics is they give us a, a glimpse of the fact that that is true. I mean that you know it's also what the Buddhists have been telling us, of course, that the self is not uh, is an illusion. Um, so you know who knows? I mean there are different vocabularies to describe the same experience, but or or different uh, m- you know in- interpretations of the mechanisms. But it's. Um, the value of it, I think, is simply to have, uh, you know, we just assume our everyday normal consciousness is the one and the most accurate and that there are unseen worlds, um, there are unseen forces. And you can look at them as in a religious sense, but you don't have to. Um, there's a really interesting uh, Italian writer and theoretical physicist named Carlo Rovelli, who published a book, actually has a new book on time and wrote a book called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. Um a few years ago, and I just saw, he gave an interview to The Guardian where he was talking about how he got turned on to uh, physics by uh, an LSD trip he had when he was 15. And he had an experience of time um, in which time stopped, and there was no sense of uh, past or future. This infinite present opened up. And when he was, again, straight, he, he was very troubled by the idea of like which was more accurate, his everyday perception or this other perception, and how could he tell? And this other perception, actually, he realized, happened to be more in accord with the ideas of modern physics, um, in which uh, our sense of time is illusory and space is curved and particles don't exist until they're observed. I mean, all these kind of like wacky ideas that suggest that the reality, the scientific reality, is not the one that presents itself to our senses. So the same drug experience can take someone in the direction of belief in, a, in an afterlife or in a, you know, another realm 
or in a scientific concept of the same sort of thing. And um, But either way, you're relativizing your everyday normal consciousness and realizing it is um, one of several. And um, and that you to gain a perspective on it, I think, is 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 very empowering, and you're you're less a victim of it, and you you see it as a little less transparent. Um, some one of the psychonauts that many psychonauts I interviewed, uh, and there's some very interesting people. There's some you know super smart um, philosophers who are into psychedelics, and and this was one of them, and he said, you know, I really think if if you and I could change consciousness. In other words, you could see the world from inside my head. Um, you would still see tables and microphones and computers, um, but it would be it would feel very trippy. It would feel like a psychedelic experience because you are priors. I mean, we you know we're, our brains are prediction machines. We don't actually see everything in front of us. We we leap to conclusions based on models in our heads. It's a very efficient way of doing things. Children don't do it, but adults do this. And your priors are shaped not just by the fact we've both looked at computers, but you come at it from with a different history, a different um, perspective, and, and it'll be slightly off, and uh, it would feel very weird. <laughs> and that's because the reality that you're seeing is not quite as transparent as you think. I love the passage in your book where you take a pee on one of your trips. <laughs> and it is a beautiful going there. It is a, and it's a beautiful pee. A and then <laughs> it it's it's the, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen and yes. it's doing all this all spectacular, this spectacular uh, crop of diamonds I believe I produced. Yes. <laughs> and um and then I think you speculate who's to say if that wasn't more real than the sort of everyday pee that we yeah. take. Well, you know, one of the we we don't see very much. We, we're such creatures of habit, and we we tend to uh, routinize everything. And you know, our brains are tuned to pick up on novelty, not the ordinary. And and that's a good survival strategy. Novelty is the mountain lion, you know, coming over the the hill. Um, uh, novelty can are threats that often need to be dealt with. Um, but as a result, we just kind of tune out. Um, the the ordinary and the ordinary is full of wonder also um, and one of the virtues of drugs I don't want to sound like a walking advertisement for them <laughs> and this is true of, of cannabis I think uh, cannabis is is particularly adept at doing this of of, of changing that tuning so the novelty bleh, but the ordinary thing like wow a hand yeah. <laughs> how incredible we all have hands and you know it is incredible but it's banal too and um and i think that that's a that's one of the salutary teachings of these experiences that there's things right in front of you that are are really fascinating and that they are um uh, so many forces, including the way our brains are tuned, but also the marketplace, you know, makes us go to the novelty and focus on that. And um, and that's not necessarily the most interesting stuff out there. Um, somebody asked me when uh, in a in previous interview, you know, you talked about these drugs are ego dissolving. And, and she said, are there drugs that are ego enhancing? And I think there are. And, uh, and uh, you know, I hadn't thought about that before, but cocaine, obviously, mm. is ego-enhancing. Your sense of self gets huge. It fills the room, and, and it wants. It wants more. Um, there's not a wanting more with psychedelics or cannabis. It's, like, enough. And, in fact, maybe too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and I think that's very interesting. So the drugs people choose perhaps reflect what they're looking for in, on that scale of ego and not ego. No. 
how... Uh, I mean, a, a lot of the book also feels like you struggling against the limits of language for the same reason, that, that uh, when we write, you know, just journalism is about presenting um, in words what it is that you're describing, and those words aren't good enough anymore um, after, after your trips. How do you, I mean, how do, how do you square that? How, yeah. how, how, how do we experience what you experience without getting high ourselves? Yeah, and you know, I'm hoping as a writer that you don't feel you have to get high to understand this. Um, that would be a mistake, because part of why we read is to have vicarious experience, right? I mean, I read books about Everest and never think about climbing it. And um, yet everyone who reads this book seems to make this decision. I, I think I have to do this. Um, <laughs> which is somewhat troubling because not everybody should do this. Some of us have and think it's pretty great. Yes, okay, <laughs> thank you. But then there's all the people who thought it was pretty great and they had several good experiences, then they had a bad experience yeah. and they haven't they haven't had another one. And I think it's a lack of shaman sort of guy. I tend to think it is yeah. too. I think that you can, you can really mitigate the risks, the psychological risks. And yeah. the physiological risks, by the way, are not that serious. Um, so um, the writing of it, I was really worried about how that would, that would work out and um because i've read terrible trip reports online and and they're like dreams you know and it's very hard to tell anyone your dreams without boring them to tears and um so i i found that first the recall was excellent i'm amazed at how much of the experience even after years you can get back um they're they're much more concrete than dreams but I found that 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 the the kind of narrative trick that allowed me to do it, and obviously the reader has to decide whether I succeeded or not, was being both inside and outside the experience, and not not just being in it, um, where you you're in this crazy logic and no one really can understand it, and it's weird and um, a little off-putting. So. I did what memoirists do, good memoirists do, which is, you know, when you're writing about your 10-year-old self, you're doing it from the perspective of your 45-year-old self. And in the space between those two perspectives is really where the, the writing gets its kind of interesting savor or edge. Um, and you're switching back and forth. Um, you can be inside the experience and then you can stand out with the perspective of age. I did something kind of similar, the, but although the perspective was not, uh, a time-based perspective. It was a, a straight and high perspective. So that I, I'm describing an experience and when it gets really out there, I, I pull back and, and, and acknowledge to the reader, I know how crazy this sounds. Um, so I'm trying to kind of hold the reader's hand in a way. And and so I'm breaking of, I'm, I'm kind of breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader at various points. And I do that also when I get to... Um, the trip that didn't have time, space, or character, uh, the 5-MeO-DMT trip, where I finally despaired of describing what essentially was this, and now I'm resorting to metaphor because there's no alternative, this Category 5 hurricane in my skull that it felt like. It was just like pure energy, uh, without shape, without form. And, um, and I tell the reader, I'm going to offer two metaphors. And neither are perfect, but this is as close as I can get, and maybe having more than one of them will help. And one is the, you know, let's go back before the Big Bang. We all remember that. <laughs> well, actually, we don't. But we know there was no matter, and we know there was no time, and there was this energy field, and um, that's what it felt like, sort of. 
And then another metaphor of being in the midst of a thermonuclear blast and the, those houses they built on the Bikini Atoll to, to watch them on their cameras blow up. It felt a little like that. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, one of the researchers, William Richards, has a, has a wonderful line uh, in the book. When I, and I'm asking him about this question about ineffability. And he says, well, imagine if you took a caveman and you brought him to Manhattan and you showed him skyscrapers and helicopters and subways and, and he came back to the cave, what would he say? He'd say big and loud and <laughs> he would say what I was saying about my five MEO DMT trip right. because he didn't have the language. And you know, as he said, we, we need 50 crayons and we only have five. And uh, so there's something to that. But as a literary matter, it's an interesting challenge. And it's, it, the argument is not, can't do this, so let's be silent. The argument is, well, let's, let's see if we can renovate our language to help us do this. Well, so, uh, Michael, uh, I, I know uh, we, we don't have you for, in fact, we're, we've, we've run out of time, but thank you so much for, for the book and for joining us to F the Ineffable. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and for bringing your crayons to the party. So uh, that, thank you very much indeed. Great pleasure talking to you guys. Fantastic. Michael Pollan is the author of How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. It's out now by Penguin Press. You can listen back to this show and find our entire archive at thesecretingredient.org or subscribe to the podcast of The Secret Ingredient wherever you get your podcasts. Raj Patel is the author of A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things, The Value of Nothing and Stuffed and Starved, and Tom Philpot is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones magazine. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And yes, I still regret very much having missed that interview with Michael Pollan. Anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>